Zion's Hill salvation comes. It's a reference to the prophecy that Christ gave when he was on this earth. He is returning, and he will come to us, and he will rescue us, and he will make all things new, and we look forward eagerly to that day. Before we are ready for Christ, we need to understand a little something about ourselves, though. And, of course, we always need God's Word to reveal us to ourselves. We don't know ourselves as well as we think. And so that is what Paul is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 7. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And if you would, uh, you want to take that bulletin and you want to tear off a strip from it, And you want to make your way to Ezekiel chapter 28, and you want to stick that little strip of paper into Ezekiel 28, because we'll be back there looking at something in Ezekiel before we're done today. So go ahead and stick that in there. Um, Before we get to work, I just want to read this scripture one more time, 7 to 13, Romans 7, 7 to 13, uh, and then we'll pray and we'll ask God to help us to see the illumination of the Holy Spirit and what we're praying and asking God to show us is the exceeding sinfulness of sin that is within each of us. It is in seeing that that we can behold even greater the wonder and the beauty and the joy of God's salvation. If our sin is great, our Savior is greater. So let's look, Romans chapter 7 Verses 7 to 13, what then should we say, Paul asks this rhetorical question, that the law is sin? Is the law there just to make us sin? He says, by no means, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, through the commandment, it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that then, which is good, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin, and this is the purpose clause. If you have your pencil or pen, underline this in your Bible. The second half of verse 13, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that, start there, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become, the ESV translates it, sinful beyond measure. The Greek literally reads that it would become exceedingly sinful, that, it, that sin would become exceedingly sinfully sin. So that is what Paul is driving at. That is what God is trying to show us. So we obviously need him to help us to see it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have spent 1,500 years dealing with the nation of Israel and giving this law in order to help them see it. We need to see it. And the only way we will see it is if the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. So let's pause for a moment and let's pray and ask God to help us to see it. Would you please bow with me? Father in heaven, we say thank you for this word this morning. We say thank you for the good purposes for which you gave both this word as well as the law. Father, help us to see our sin for what it really is. Help us to recognize that sin is deceptive and that the one who is most deceived by their sin is the sinner. Lord, help us to understand the depth and the gravity and the magnitude of it, that we would begin to appreciate the majesty and the magnificence and the soaring heights towards which your Savior ascends in bringing us salvation. For if we are great sinners, Lord, we know that your Son is an even greater Savior. Drive that truth home into our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Western society doesn't talk about sin so much anymore. Western society prides itself on the fact that it is reasonable, that it is intellectual, that it is logical. Indeed, you would think from listening to some of the pundits who uh, prognosticate on these things that logic and reason are the touchstones, the, the guiding lights that really drive our society. Logic is a good thing. Don't misunderstand me. Logic and reason can explain things in part, but we need to have a few cautions as we consider logic. Logic in itself, by itself, fails miserably and dismally. For a person to limit himself and his understanding of the world to reason only or to logic only would be to blot out of his life the spectacular revelations of Almighty God. The Greeks played around with logic. It it dates back to them. And they played around with logic and metaphysics, and they loved to do so. They loved to play these mind games. An author named Zeller once wrote the outlines of Greek philosophy. In, a, in that particular book, he presents a Greek sophist by the name of Georges. And by metaphysics, Georges proved, listen to this, by metaphysics, by logic, Georges proved that motion was impossible. Motion. Some of you are like, wait, what? Well, that is a joke. I, I, was, I wasn't ready for it yet. You usually build up to these things. See my hand? Did you see how it moved? Georges says that this is not happening, that he, he proved logically that it was impossible. This is the use of logic, you see. It can prove all kinds of things if it's used in a certain way. You say, I don't think so. Yes, indeed. Okay, pastor, walk me through it. It's a classical syllogism for our students at First Baptist Classical Academy. They should be able to identify some of these terms, but it's a, three, it's a three-part argument. Step one, premise one, we should say. A thing, Georges argues, cannot move from where it is because if it does, then it is not there. So far, so good. A thing can't move from where it is because if it does, it is not there. Second part of the argument, a thing cannot move from where it is not because it is not there in order to move from there. So far, so good. Third step of the argument, where a thing is and where a thing is not are the only two possible places in the universe where that thing might exist. Where a thing is and where it is also not These are the only two places in the universe where a thing could exist. Conclusion. Therefore, he says, a thing cannot move. Yeah, you're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Which is correct. It is indeed the dumbest thing you've ever heard. Look, I'm just proving 60 pages of George's argument and reasoning right here. This is the problem with logic. You can set up premises in a certain way. You can define terms in a certain way as to achieve a desired outcome. Now, who would ever want to stack the deck in their logical thinking? Well, interestingly enough, all of us. And that's what Paul is driving at in Romans chapter 7. You're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, I would never be so foolish and so dumb as to set up an argument as to prove that motion is impossible. Maybe not motion, since it seems fairly straightforward that my hand is moving back and forth here. But Paul is saying that God's reason for giving us the law is because you are a rather clever, argumentative debater, and you have argued yourself and debated with yourself to the point of discounting yourself as a sinful person, and God wanted you to be able to see that, and that's why he gives us the law. God doesn't give us the law so that he can sort of work out in some sort of a scientific lab what ought to be holy and what ought to be sin. God knows what is holiness. God knows what is righteous. God knows what is sin. The problem is that you do not, but you should. He now wants to help you to see that. Look with me in Romans chapter 7. This question is posed. Paul says rhetorically, what then should we say? Having argued now that the law no longer has any 
bind on the Christian, that the Christian has been set free from the law. Paul says, okay, so knowing this, knowing now that we've been set free from the law because of Christ, what then are we to make of the law? And the question isn't simply what do we make of the law now in terms of the Christian's experience moving forward. He has already argued previously that the Christian is now free from the law. He's been discharged from the law as we saw last week. The question then is what was the purpose, what was the function of this thing in the first place? Did God just give the law in order to trap us in sin? Was this commandment, which God says is good, really evil? Is it bad? That's what Paul poses in terms of the question, the rhetorical question that he asks. He says, what then should we say, that the law is sin? And then he answers it, no way, we could never possibly say that. We cannot say that. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not even sure why we would pose that as a question. Think of it like this. Think back to when you were a young child, or perhaps for those of you with parents who have young children, can you recall that moment in which either you or your child asked you to have a dog? That first animal. Maybe you didn't have any other animals and your, dog, your, your child comes to you and says, I'd like to have a pet dog. And you know that as a young parent juggling a job or two jobs, trying to provide an income for your kids, you can't possibly take care of that animal. And when you look at your young four-year-old, three-year-old, or five-year-old, as the case may be, asking you for an animal, you know that they can't take care of the animal either. So you make them a deal. Raise your hand if you ever had a parent who made this deal with you. You go to your child and you say, I tell you what, I will give you not a dog, but a fish. Okay? I'm going to give you a fish. And you take that fish and you love that fish. You feed that fish. You clean that fish's tank once a month or whatever the case may be. And you do a good job. You be responsible for that fish. Then I'll give you a dog. Now, was that a good faith offer? No way. No way. You're banking on the fact that your kid is going to kill that fish. You're sure of it. Like, I can't afford a dog. I know there's no way my kid's going to be able to take care of this dog. I don't want a dog. Here's a fish. And you present it under the guise of, here, if you can attain to the, the standard of care necessary for helping this little fish to survive, I'll give you a dog. But in your mind, you know all the way through that you have absolutely no intention of giving your child a dog, and you're pretty sure the child is going to kill the fish, so you're just waiting for that to play out. Now, you grow up eventually at some point, and you begin to have these conversations with your parents when you're like, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, and you recall back to that time you had a fish when you were a little kid, and you're like, Hey, you know, remember that time I had that fish? Yeah, 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 I remember that time. You know, I really wanted a dog. Yeah, I know you did. That's why I gave you the fish. Well, why didn't you just tell me that I couldn't handle having a dog, and that's why you gave me the fish? Now, here's where motivation matters. Some of us have kids who are incredibly responsible, and so we try to placate them and dismiss them with a fish but we know they actually probably could take care of the dog. Here's where motivation matters. Is the giving of the fish truly intended to help your child understand their inability to do what they would need to do in order to care for the dog? Or is the giving of the fish intended to trap your child into an impossible situation which they never could satisfy, and yet you presented it as though it were something that they could strive to, that they could meet. One, both are disguised under this cloak of, I just need you to understand that you can't quite take care of a dog. But for some of us, we know that our child probably could take care of a dog, but we just don't want to buy them a dog. We don't have room. We live in a tiny apartment. There are any number of different excuses that we might have. In one case... You're truly trying to help your child see what they need to see in order to understand your reasoning, your decision-making. But in the other case, you're being deceptive and manipulative, and you really have no intention of giving your child a dog, even though they might actually be capable of caring for it. In one instance, you're just trying to do away with the requests of your child. In the other instance, you're really trying to educate them. 
one instance is virtuous, the other is sinful. And so the question that these Jews are asking Paul is, well, why then did God even bother to give the law? If we have been truly discharged from the law, then of course the law must not have anything virtuous or good in it whatsoever. Its only purpose then was just to trap us, just to put us in a situation in which we would die. The law, therefore, is just a tool of death. This is what they are saying. They're dismissing and discounting the whole nature of the law and the reason for the law and the structure of the law. They're suggesting that the law itself was really put in place to serve diabolical purposes. Paul's response to that is, no way, not true. Look at what he says here. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. His statement here is that his ability to recognize and to identify something simply would not have existed if God had not given him the law. So he's hinting at the fact that the purposes of God in giving the law are noble. They are intended to educate us on what is righteous and virtuous. But he goes further and he says, I wouldn't even know sin if I didn't have the law. In other words, we think we understand sin. We think we know what sin is all about, but we don't. When we come to a position where we're evaluating ourselves, we tend to dismiss our behavior. We tend to minimize our actions We tend to justify our motivations. Paul says the law was given by God in order to show us what sin really is so that we would know ourselves to be sinners. Look at what he says. If if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, there's an interesting statement he makes here. In verse 8, he says, Sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once apart from the law. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul's statement here is that spiritual death resulted the moment his awareness of spiritual death resulted. His understanding of his own spiritual need came about when the law killed him. But it wasn't the law who was killing him. It was sin using the law to kill him. In other words, the law is good, Paul's saying, but the law has been used by sin to produce death in us. To draw the distinction, it's kind of like using a scalpel. Why are scalpels invented in the first place? So that surgeons can do the work of healing in the operating room. In a sense, God has given us the law in order to help heal us, to show us our sickness and our need for him. But what sin has done is it's taken that scalpel and slashed our throat. The law isn't bad in the same way that the scalpel isn't bad. It was created and given for a good purpose, but sin has taken it, sin has seized it, and has used it to bring about our ultimate destruction. Paul says, I didn't know what sin was apart from the law. And he makes this statement in verse 8, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. But then he says, the law was awakened by sin. He says, sin came alive, tail end of verse 9, and I died. The idea there isn't that sin was dead itself and then came alive. That's how the ESV translates it. But a better understanding of this word is that sin was lying inside of Paul, dormant. But the moment that a commandment came along and said, don't covet, sin sprang up in him and started producing all kinds of covetousness. In other words, Paul is sitting there looking at the Ten Commandments, and he's thinking, okay, love Lord your God, check. Don't make any graven images, check. Go to a temple on the Sabbath, check, check, check. On your father and mother, don't don't lie, don't, don't murder, check, 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 check. But then he came to covetousness, the last of the Ten Commandments, and covetousness is essentially this. Don't want other people's things. No problem until he looks out the window and sees somebody with a thing. And he's like, oh, that's a nice thing. I'd like to have that. Oh, here I am, coveting other people's stuff. In the moment, he was consciously aware of sin as sin. 
in the moment, if you'd asked him before his understanding, before he understood the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, if you had said to him, do you just want to, do you just run around wanting what everybody else has? He would be like, no, I don't have that desire. I don't want to go take what other people have. I don't want what they have. But as soon as he heard that commandment, sin came alive inside of him. It was always there. The scripture says it awakened and it started to drive him to wanting things that he ought not to want. It drove him to start coveting. And in that moment, he knew that he shouldn't be coveting. And it speaks to the desires of his heart. Deep down, he knows he wants this thing. His external actions look virtuous. He is, by all outward appearances, a godly young man growing up as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of the law within Judaism. And yet the 10th commandment, when he hears it and he understands what it's saying, it immediately raises up in him a desire that is dormant that then drives him from the heart to violating what the commandment is speaking to. Namely, at the point of his heart, at the point of desire, he should not be wanting things. Where desire originates from, there should not be this desire, and yet he cannot deny that it is there. And so he says, I was dead. This is you and me. This is our experience across all aspects of life. You're driving along. You're not conscious of the speed. You're just driving along, thinking about what you have to do today. You see a speed limit, 40 kilometers an hour. You look at your dashboard, you're doing 35 kilometers an hour. What comes next? Mm, You start to accelerate. This happens from the moment that you're a child. I can bear witness to this, as can you. All three of my children, we have a wood-burning fireplace in my house. All three of my children, from the moment that they could walk, I would say to them, it's wintertime. It's cold. We're burning a fire. We have a grate in front of the fire, but that grate is extremely hot. If you touch that grate, you're going to burn your hand. If you don't touch that grate, for every 10 minutes that you and I can sit here in this room and enjoy each other's company without you touching that grate, I will give you a little candy. I had Tootsie Rolls. They sat there. Ten minutes went by, here's your Tootsie Roll. They ate it. Wonderful. As soon as they finished swallowing, yeah, that was wonderful. I wonder what that grade is like. I'm not lying to them. It's hot. It will burn you. I'm commanding them not to do something for their good. The commandment is not bad, and I've even attached a promise of reward to it if they would follow it. Yeah, the Tootsie Roll was nice and all, but mm, there's something going on with that crate. I got to know what it is. And immediately, like almost like zombies, <laughs> they just start going for the crate. And you're like, no, and you, you, know, you reprimand them and chastise them. Sit them back down. I'll give you a Tootsie Roll if you don't touch it. And they get up and almost immediately, without thinking about it, start walking towards the crate. When we're told not to do something, sin comes awake and drives us irrationally, unreasonably to do the very thing we've been told not to do and even had explained why we ought not to do it. This last week, I'm teaching an Old Testament survey. One of my students, we're we're talking through the Deuteronomy, through the Decalogue right now. We're explaining all of these things in Old Testament survey. One of my students in my grade seven Old Testament survey class raises his hand. We're talking about sin and the nature of sin and uh, why God gives the law. And the student raises his hand. He says, okay, so here's a hypothetical example. Suppose, and this is totally hypothetical, I told the student I was going to use this illustration in the sermon today, and he was like, make sure you explain to the congregation that it's hypothetical. I said, no worries, I'll do that. He says, suppose you have a student, you have a kid who's addicted to video games, Okay. And he just loves to play video games. And the parents come into the room and they say, don't play video games. And of course, you know, he gets angry. And then as soon as they're not looking, he goes right back to playing video games. He has uh, one of these handheld devices, right? It's not like on the the TV or anything. He can kind of like sneak it away into his room and play on it. Says he knows it's wrong. And yet he can't stop himself from playing that video game, even though his parents have told him it's time for him to do other things like do his chores or do his homework. He says, if the parent came in and said, 
you are not allowed to do anything else. You may only play video games. Would that be useful in breaking that child from his addiction to video games? And of course, my response to him was, when you grow up, you must want to be a psychologist. (laughs) Because that's psychiatry in a nutshell. And he said, no, I actually want to be a mission aviation, a missionary aviation pilot, which is great. But uh, it's a wonderful question, is it not? Can you turn your sin against other aspects of your sin to break you from your sin, from this sin in favor of some other sin? And this is why the law is given to us, Paul is saying. You actually live every day of your life in this place where you think you understand sin and you think you can control sin. You think you understand what's going on in the darkness of your heart, but then you continue to convince yourself that you're capable through manipulation or various other means of grabbing a hold of that dark power and still somehow bending it to your will. In other words, the greatest sin of all that we all participate in is, number one, not knowing the depths of our sin by coming to this place where we think, yes, even though I'm a sinner, I'm still somehow in control of this thing. And you're not. The nature of sin, and what Paul is driving at here, is that it is deceptive. Notice what he says. He says, if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. Of all the righteous guys that lived, of all the people that really tried hard to be good, I doubt there was any so good striving so hard as Paul. Later on in the book of Galatians, speaking autobiographically, he says, as regards the law, I was blameless. Now, he wasn't actually blameless, but he makes that statement in the book of Galatians, which is to say that if there was a tactic, if there was a strategy, if there was something he could do to cope with his sin, if there was something he could do to try to hold himself back, you better believe he employed every strategy and every tool in the toolbox to try and stop himself from sinning, and he could not do it. You and I do not strive or aspire to any of the lengths that Paul went after. You and I have a tendency instead to minimize, to downplay, to justify, to say, yeah, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but then again, who is? Paul is sitting here saying that what we really need to do is come to terms with the darkness of the sin that grips us. We are sinners. It drives us We don't even understand just how hard it drives us. We don't even fully appreciate just how enslaved to it we actually are. And the reason why we fail to appreciate it is because we still think that we're in control of our minds and we still think that we're capable of reasoning our way through our sin. And it's right at that point that we are most broken. I want you to go to Ezekiel 28. The first sinner... Whoever lived, Satan himself. Before you go to Ezekiel 28, I want to read you this passage from Paul writing to the church in Crete, specifically writing to Titus. Just listen to this. Paul makes this interesting statement. He's giving instructions to Titus. And he makes the statement to, um, to uh, Titus. He says, Cretans, this is the island... This is where Titus is ministering. He says, Cretans are always liars. And he makes this really interesting statement. He says, a Cretan, a prophet of their own, has testified that Cretans are always liars. And this leads to what we know today as the Cretan paradox. If a man tells you that he is always a liar... Do you believe him? I am always a liar. Mm. But if that's true, then in this moment you're telling the truth, which is to say that you might be a liar a majority of the time, but you're not always a liar. You're just mostly a liar. But what if I always am a liar? Well, that would mean that when I make the statement, I am always a liar, then I'm actually 
lying about always lying, which is to say that I'm not telling the truth. I am actually lying, but it still calls into question, how often do I lie? But then think about it from your perspective, trying to take this man at his word. Do you believe him? How often should you believe him? When can you believe him? Here's another question. If he's always a liar, does he believe himself? Now we come to Ezekiel chapter 28. We come to Satan. Now, for the more astute Bible scholars among us, you might be looking at this passage and say, wait a minute, Pastor Josh, this passage is not about Satan. It's about the king of Tyre. And we're going to be looking specifically at the tail end of, uh, of chapter 28. You can jump all the way down. In verse 11, this is really where it begins. And indeed, the ESV has this little footnote over the top of it. It says, a lament over the king of Tyre. This is a political figure that is indeed governing and ruling this uh, island nation of, of Tyre. And God is going to bring judgment against it. And yet, as you read through this lament, it starts off as a lament, which is to say it's a song of sadness. It's a song of sorrow. But the lament quickly shifts to something more akin to a present-day indictment. It goes from sadness to you're to be judged and you deserve to be judged, and here's the punishment that you will receive. But in the course of this, what happens is, as God is prophesying through the prophet Ezekiel about the king of Tyre, you begin to read this prophecy of coming judgment on the king of Tyre, and you can't help but see that behind the king of Tyre, what God is really addressing is Satan himself. Jump all the way down to verse 14. Is this about the king of Tyre, or is this about Satan? Verse 14, Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel makes this statement. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Wow. A guardian cherub walking on the holy mountain where God lives, walking on the fiery stones, a a symbol of purity and holiness. Does that sound like the king of Tyre? One of the things that Paul has said, working our way through the book of Romans, is that we're all born sinners. There's no way you could be talking about a man here and saying there once was a time in which you were perfection. That's what he says of him. You were perfection. But now he's talking about the fall of this particular guardian cherub. And he makes this statement in verse 16, in the abundance of your trade... Sorry, in verse 15, he says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. There was violence in his midst. That is to say, this guardian cherub, whom we will, for our purposes today, identify as Satan, had a violent struggle take place inside of himself. He says, you were filled with violence. There was anarchy reigning inside of this person's heart, inside of Lucifer's heart, Satan's heart. And it says, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. This is halfway through verse 16. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So God is saying, I threw you out of heaven and I destroyed you. He began by saying, I saw violence happening in the midst of you. And you and I are thinking, well, what's this violence? What's going on? When we look at the very first human sinners, Adam and Eve, we understand that they rebelled against God. They had to have it their own way, but they were prompted to do so by a tempter, by the snake, by Satan. But when we come to Satan himself, who tempted him? Nobody. This is what theologians refer to as the mystery of iniquity. They say, what was it that led Satan to rebel against God? And it is always a bit mysterious. But from God's perspective, violence took place inside of Lucifer's soul. And it tells us what happened. If you look at verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. And he says, you corrupted your wisdom 
for the sake of your splendor. The way that God describes the fall of Satan is that he was extremely intelligent. He was wise. And yet when this violence unfolded inside of his soul, Satan had to make a decision. He knew God was God and that he was not. And in order for him to go against God and to rebel against God, the first thing that needed to break was his own intellect. Such that his wisdom would fall, such that his understanding would fall, he would no longer be a person of truth. He would no longer be grounded in reality for the sake of his splendor, for the sake of what he considered to be beautiful himself. He would throw reality to the wind. He would throw truth to the wind. He would deny all that was actually real in order to go up against God. And what God is saying is that violence in the soul took place, and as a result of that, his wisdom was corrupted, which is to say Satan himself is always evil, he is always a rebel, and he always lives in his own make-believe world in which he still somehow thinks he might pull off an upset. That in the last five seconds of the game, when the score is 12 billion to God and zero to Satan, he might still throw that last Hail Mary and pull out an upset and somehow still unseat and dethrone God. He is utterly irrational, completely foolish. He is stupid because his brain has been destroyed. He destroyed it. You say to yourself, I'm not that bad of a person. I can control my sin. You're reasoning like the devil. Paul makes this incredible statement in Romans chapter 7. Go back there. He says, I would not have known sin if God hadn't given me this law to help me to see it. Paul is saying, despite what all my theological training might have been, despite all my understanding, I didn't know anything until God revealed myself to me. We live in that same fantasy world. And the only way we really look in the mirror and really understand what is there is if God shows it to us. He makes that statement beginning in verse 7. I wouldn't have known sin if God hadn't shown it to me by giving me the law. And then you jump on down in verse 11. It says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Look at this. Deceived me. And through through it, through the commandment, it killed me. Your sin is deceptive. It lies sleeping It wants to lull you into a place of complacency. And this is a part of the horrific nature of what sin is. Paul then comes to this conclusion, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. And why did God give this commandment? Here's the purpose statement in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Look at that phrase, it might be shown. Does God see sin? He sure does. Is God giving a commandment so he can figure out just how dark and twisted it really is? No. The commandment's not for God. Who is it that doesn't see it? Who is it that doesn't get it? You don't see it. You don't get it. And the commandment is there so that you might, by the grace of God in the giving of the commandment, might actually see the dark monster that lies within, that is you. He says the commandment was given so that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, Paul says, it might become sinful, the ESV translates, beyond measure. In other words, God's goal was to show you this is a heinous thing and it's going to bubble up and it's going to become so pervasive there won't be any way you can miss it. You can't help but see it. It is everywhere. 
What an amazing gift God has given to us. Last week, I preached that we were discharged from the law. And one of our visitors last week pulled me aside in the foyer after the worship service, and he said, he, he thanked me for the sermon, and, and he said that he appreciated it, but he drew my attention to a particular passage. And he said, I, I just wonder if perhaps you might be running afoul of Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20 which I knew exactly the passage he was referencing, and I had it on my bulletin board to address this week. So this is already coming. But I draw, this attention, I draw this to your attention this morning because this passage in Romans tells us we have been set free from the law. But we should never minimize what God is doing through the law. Jesus himself, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Notice that. Of all those who have lived under the law, only one person has fulfilled it. He didn't come to destroy it or abolish it. He says he came to fulfill it. He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the nature of salvation. You can't keep the law There is one who does. His name is Jesus. We're not here to say that there's no obligation on humanity, that there's no truth in the morality of the law, but we are here to say that you can be forgiven of your sins, and you can, as Paul mentioned to us last week, be discharged from the penalties and the requirements of the law if you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, and he will satisfy all of those things on your behalf. There is only one who fulfills the law. And that is Jesus. In our understanding of the law, we recognize that we are free from it. We have been discharged from it. We are now bound to Christ. But the law is still good. And the law is still in force until the day our king comes for us. Indeed, one of the things we see in preaching the law is the greatness of our sin. But by the understanding of our sin, we begin to appreciate the greatness of Jesus. You see, Jesus is so beautiful and so magnificent and so wonderful in all that he does. Every day that I sit down and I wrestle with the real me, who I am, more and more I come to understand just exactly how much Jesus died for. I prayed to receive Christ when I was seven years old. I thought then that I was a bad kid. Oh, man, you have no idea how much bad I've done in 42 years of living on this earth. I was just at the start of my career as a seven-year-old. And the same is true for you. I thought I had confessed everything that I was guilty of. I thought at that time as a seven-year-old that I had handed over every sin to Jesus Christ. And as I grew up and as I went through adolescence and became a young man, I discovered more and more and more sins that were still haunting me. But by the grace of God, Jesus has stuck with me all the way through. And he will with you as well. He has time and again confronted me, delivered me, and atoned for me. I am free from the law only because I am bound to Jesus Christ. I understand now today something I never could have appreciated as a seven-year-old. Walking faithfully with the Lord, striving to be faithful to the Lord. I understand the depths of my sin more and more. And it helps me more and more to see the greatness of the cross. 
Let this be a warning to us. There are churches and pastors today who say, you know what, as a ministry philosophy, we need to downplay sin. We need to downplay these types of things. We need to sugarcoat these things in order that we might win people to becoming our friends, to attending here more regularly. We'll tell them about Jesus. We'll tell them that Jesus is this great, amazing, wonderful Savior, and we'll lift high the cross. And in time, our hope and our prayer is that they will give themselves to Christ and they will come over time to recognize their sin. But friends, that is a flaw approach. Paul says that for over 1,500 years, God had been walking with Israel under a law to show them to themselves that they might actually receive him. Now, the problem with other churches on the legalistic fundamentalist side is they hammer law, 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 but never grace. Understand the truth of what Paul is presenting here. Law is real. You're a sinner, but you are given the law to see the greatness of your sin so that you can see something which you otherwise would never be capable of seeing, the greatness of Jesus Christ. For every mistake you make, for every way you rebel against him, however bad you are, he is so much better. If we minimize law, we impoverish the Savior's salvation. If we sugarcoat the hard truth of the blackness of our sin, what we do is we make Jesus' work on the cross to be trivial. It wasn't trivial. And here's the reality that I've come to understand after 42 years. I think I get it as a sinner, but I'm still discovering more and more. Jesus understood it fully as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was to be crucified. There was no gradual process of exploration and discovery. He knew the blackness of everything that was about to be placed on him. And I invite you today, if you are here, and you're still walking under this misguided notion that you will somehow you know, be a good person and manage your sin and control this sin by embracing this other sin, you are still enslaved to the law and there's only one penalty. You will die and suffer judgment for eternity. But the good news is this. You can be set free from all of that if you'll trust in Jesus. In Psalm 23, verse 4, it's read at every funeral. And indeed, if you're here playing games with Christ, you might be thinking to yourself, when you die, you might have this psalm read at your funeral. But understand the significance of what it is saying. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Does the rod and staff of Jesus comfort you? Or do you throw off his rod and staff and still think of him as your shepherd? You can't have it both ways. And when it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, indeed, the psalmist is painting this poetic picture of walking through a valley of danger. We think of danger always as outside of ourselves. But the deepest understanding of this passage is this. The danger is inside of you. And Jesus can come there and wipe that sin away if you'll let him. I was reading a book about the Vietnam War, and I was reading specifically about a war correspondent. And the war correspondent, he was a Christian fellow, and he was reporting on the Vietnam War back in the 70s. And uh, he came across a a Buddhist uh, war correspondent, uh, and the, the Buddhist war correspondent made the comment to the American war correspondent. He says, I'm a Buddhist, and my religion is so much better than yours. He says, I have a happy religion, and I worship a happy God. He talked of Buddha being this fat, happy man that's just smiling and sitting on a log all the time. He says, but in your religion, this Christian religion, he says, it's full of blood and suffering and crucifixion and death. And when you actually come before your God, he's dying in shame on a cross. He says, what kind of a messed up religion is that? Sometime later, this American correspondent saw a Chinese man starving beside the road. And the correspondent went over to him, and he saw that the man was dying. And there were people passing by, Vietnamese, Chinese, different, from different Asian nationalities. And he called out to them to help him. This guy needed food. He needed water. He was dying. And this man just needed a little help getting him somewhere to a restaurant, perhaps, where he might buy him some food. 
But as he called out to all of these Buddhists, asking for help, not one would stop. In fact, they all looked at him with disdain and disgust, as though this was kind of a job that was beneath them. And so the correspondent reached down and he picked up the dying man in his arms. And as he held that man in his arms, he looked upon the dying man's face. And he understood in that moment, where would you take him? Would you take him to Buddha? Would you take him to a fat, happy man sitting on a log, thinking logically about the world? Is that where you would take him? Or would you take him and lay him before the one who suffered just as he is suffering? The one who is in pain just as he is in pain? Would you take him to a fat, happy, intellectually sound monk sitting on a log? Or would you take him to a man who loved him so much he died for him? Christianity is a real faith, a true faith. And if you were here today and you've ever been appalled by some of these things you hear about Christ and about Christianity, you've heard of the cross and the blood and the gore, and you've thought to yourself, that's just too much for me, I invite you to look in the mirror. The sin that you have in your heart is really what draws out all that blood and all that suffering. You are too much for you, but Jesus can save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, if there are any here today who think they understand their sin, if there are any here today who think they can control the darkness within, I pray you'd open their eyes to see the truth, and I pray, Lord, that you'd draw them to faith in your son, Jesus. Awaken in them the desperate need for what only you can give, and bring them to faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The worship team is going to come and lead us in singing. I invite you to go ahead and stand as we prepare to sing our last song this morning. As this church is about to worship the Lord, if you are here and you have never trusted in Christ, you need to come so. You need to come forward now and you need to do so today. I'm going to be at the front and Pastor Tyler is going to be at the front. We invite you to come.